This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Go-Go. You're listening to 3RRR. I'm Dr. Shane. In the studio with me this morning is Dr. Ewan. Good morning, buddy. Good morning. How are you? Good. We're going to have a, we're going to have a big talk later in the yeah. show about species. Can I just warn people, can you get your chocolate and your beer ready now? <laughs> Just to make the world a happier place. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, personally, I'm going to. Halfway through the show, I'm just going to hit a volume and yeah, uh, go good from plan. there. Just good calm, plan. just to be calm good as plan. we talk about this um, this new report. Dr. Jean, good morning. Morning, Dr. Shane. Did you bring Valium for all of us? <laughs> I can break the table up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure it'll be that effective. No, I have some good news to share today. Oh, good. I, I thought I'd That'd you know be... break the trend. Yeah, yeah, me too. Me too. Mine's good, but good. confusing. Okay. Uh, speaking of confusing, Chris <laughs> KP. Yeah, how are you? There we... always is a segue, isn't it? Well, there always should be a segue. Yeah. Otherwise, I'm stuck out there on a segwayless rock. Yeah. We it's wouldn't a, want that. No. Yeah. That sounds I mean, painful. If people want a, a visual of the studio, the mm. team always sort of sits away from Chris. <laughs> he's, off, he's off to the side. Which I think is, look, I think that's actually quite clever of me. It's quite a small room to isolate oneself in. I'm, but I'm you've so, chosen to do that, Chris. Yeah, you yes. could be sitting right here beside me, buddy. That's uh, your it's, choice. It's almost Luke Skywalker-ish. Like he's putting himself on the little island. He's gone into yeah. exile. He's, you know, deeply thinking about Where's things. Where's your lightsaber, mate? <laughs> yeah. Wow, you're well, humping this up way more than reality. <laughs> More to the point, where's the hand that was attached to it? True. I mean, really. Let's not go Well, we've got a couple of guests coming in uh, in about 15 minutes, folks, but until then, we're going to fill you up with some science news. Dr. Ewan, do you want to start us off? I'm going to talk about box jellyfish. Oh, cool. So they're really cool critters. So the most venomous uh, animal on Earth, as far as we know. Wow. Um, In worst-case scenario, it can kill you in two minutes. If you get about two metres plus of its tentacles, its tentacles can be up to three metres long. Mm. These things can swim faster than Olympic athletes, by the way. So they're really active swimmers. Um, they have really venomous uh, ability, obviously, to capture their prey and kill them quite quickly, things like fish. And, of course, for people who get hit by them, it's excruciatingly painful. It leaves scarring and it can kill people. So they're, they're really a serious issue. And, actually, they're one of the things that's predicted to increase as a result of climate change. So good news story for box jellyfish, <laughs> not so much for humans. <laughs> <laughs> nice. well, well, keep us out of the water. I think that's a, that's a good news story all right. That's right. Yeah. Um, and so the researchers have been looking at, uh, you know, I guess how does this venom work? And venom itself is an amazing substance. So it's a cocktail of huge numbers of chemicals, and they're really quite um, complex things to unpack. But mm. what they essentially did was use CRISPR, so gene editing essentially, and they took uh, thousands and thousands and thousands of human cells, and then they turned genes on, uh, off, and then they actually exposed them um, to the venom of these uh the box jellyfish and looked whether cells uh, survived or not. And some cells managed to survive for a couple of weeks, still, um, you know, in the presence of this venom. Others died within, I think it's five minutes or something. It's very quick. Mm-hmm. And what they found essentially is it appears that uh, the way that um, the box jellyfish venom does most of its damage is interacting with cholesterol on the skin surface. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we have all these drugs that, you know, deal with cholesterol. Mm-hmm. And sure enough, they did this. They actually applied this uh, treatment to this uh, human cells outside of the human body, um, and um, there seemed to be some evidence that this works. And they've also done this with rats, um, so live live uh, rodents. So it appears that there potentially is the application for some sort of a topical cream that you could rub on your skin if you were hit. Now they say that has to happen within 15 minutes of the sting occurring. Of course, we also know that if you get hit by a box jellyfish, hot water or vinegar mm. are your other options, mm. and you need to do that ASAP. <laughs> Um, because of the fact that it can cause huge damage, yeah. Serious question. Yeah. 
Is warm vinegar better than cold vinegar? Great question. I don't know. I, I, I don't I think the actions are different, so I don't know if it would have So the, the warm is the warm is the breakdown proteins yeah. mm. and then I assume the vinegar is a is a is a um, pH thing, yes, right? Same. So mm. maybe if maybe it would be okay. Boiling both vinegar. is best. But yeah. <laughs> I guess you're not gonna have time to warm up your, your vinegar while you've got the sting sitting there. Yeah. But, <laughs> but anyway. But if you report that I've got people sitting on the beach waiting warming vinegar for me, you know. That's true. But anyway, the, 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 the concern at the moment is that it's all very well and good, of course, to have this cream that you rub onto yourself if you've been hit by a box jellyfish. But the way that box jellyfish stings work too is imagine like hundreds and hundreds of little hooks all the way along mm. this um, tentacles of the box jellyfish and at the base of each one of those is a little capsule. So when you're swimming and you hit one of these things, that capsule gets triggered and out comes the venom. And, of course, if you're rubbing topical mm. cream on the sting on your body, you're potentially releasing all that venom. So there's a bit of a trade-off there potentially. So the next step is to work out how you could use this without actually potentially making the matter worse because the more venom you pump in, the more likely you're going to have a cardiac arrest. Mm. So there's a lot spray. more to learn. They need a spray. Uh, I mean, I've yeah. always been comforted by the fact that I can outswim every shark except the hammerhead. But you're telling me I wouldn't be able to outswim a box. Can we step box? back one you, you second? Every it? shark except the hammerhead. Yeah, they're pretty you, fast. You can outswim a great white shark. Oh, there's no question, but... <laughs> <laughs> there, are, there are some the questions. <laughs> Mako shark, I'll list them off. Yeah. Next so, week, folks, we're doing a trial. Not, I, I did not... I, I mean, maybe it's just my perception, but I never had the perception of, of jellyfish yeah, as being mm. fast swimmers. So these, mm. uh, they're amazing... You should read up about them. They're amazing animals. They have really good vision. Um, oh. yeah, they're, they're active swimmers they're, they're incredible they really yeah. are quite amazing animals because yeah. I, I, I would have thought if I'd come across a jellyfish you know I'd just sort of look at it and go yeah you keep going with the tide buddy I'm going that way yeah. but not, not realising that you know Phelps wouldn't be able to sort of yeah. uh, they, outrun this so if they have great vision if they you know see a human um, we're, we're not prey. Do they see us as a threat and turn around and go the other way? Do they just not care and go yeah. whatever? Do you? Yeah, I don't think they're chasing not, us not, down. Not no. vision as if in the yeah, way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But they sense yeah. that we're there, though. Absolutely. But I don't think they'd be able to turn around that quickly. Okay. You know? mm. Yeah. There's your secret. So, so it's yeah, faster. So it's just fast, turn a corner. They can't turn yeah. corners. And they can't climb stairs. Yeah, I like yeah. it. <laughs> more importantly, I think, unfortunately, humans don't see them anyway before it's too yeah, late. Yeah, so we, we just run straight into them. So not fair. Because in the tropics, a lot of where they occur is quite disturbed water, right? So, you know, if you're out in really turbid water, you don't see them until you get hit by one. Like, so you go to Townsville cans, they have yeah. skin nets because you yeah. can't see these things until you wear one and then it's too late. Yeah. So, Nasty. Yeah. Mm. Uh, it's a good story for winter because people aren't going down to the beach. Dr. Jen. Right. So, um, you know, a week away we've got an election, just this slight mm. important issue that people need to consider. Is that next that week? Being, yeah, that being I should put climate, it in my diary. Please make an end. <laughs> that being climate change. And we all know that, you know, one of the main issues here is this general sense of kind of apathy and, and certainly lack of understanding and lack mm. of concern mm. among the voting adult population around the world. And many a discussion has been had about where scientists and science communicators have failed that, you know, just sharing facts doesn't appear to convince people to do anything different or understand anything different. So, you know, mm. why why have people been um, not been convinced that, that urgent action is required? And so I want to tell you a good story that, that came out in um, Nature Climate Change this week. Some re researchers worked with 238 families in North Carolina. All of these families had kids aged 10 to 14 and they collected a whole lot of information from the parents of all of these families. So your political views, your kind of demographics um, and in particular what level of 
of concern these parents held about climate change. So there's a scale from negative eight, meaning I'm not concerned at all, through to positive eight, meaning I'm absolutely terrified. Mm. So, you know, your average person might sit somewhere kind of in the middle there. And then they divided the students in these families into two groups. One of the fam one of the groups of kids took part in some really good classroom sessions learning about the science of climate change. They also went off and did a field trip to look at some of the effects in their local area of climate change. Mm. The other group, the control group, didn't do any of this stuff. They didn't have any education about climate change. And the kids who'd done the education were asked to talk with their parents, in a particular interview their parents, about whether their parents had noticed any changes in climate or weather during their lifetime and just have a discussion and, you know, were encouraged to talk about what they learned about climate change. Um, and then the researchers re-interviewed the parents to find out if their views on climate change had been shifted at all by these conversations with their kids. And they had, massively so. Mm -hmm. So on average, um, parental concern uh, increased by about four points on that scale, which is only a 16-point scale, so yeah, that's, that's a lot. pretty yeah. massive. 25%. Yeah. 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 Um, conservative parents increased even more, nearly five points on the scale, so you ended up with left-wing and right-wing voting parents in on about the same scale. Mm -hmm. So basically all of these parents went from being, no, I'm not concerned, to actually, yes, I'm moderately concerned about climate change. Importantly, uh, daughters were more convincing than sons. So daughters, whether they were better communicators at that age or they haven't uncovered what the mechanism here is yet, but families with daughters shifted more on that scale That's than families with sons. Um, and fathers shifted more than mothers did. So in particular, girls talking to their fathers saw the biggest mm. shift in going from, mm. I'm not concerned at all, to actually, yes, I'm really how, concerned How old, about how old are the kids? 10 to 14. Okay. So, you know, young high school pretty knowledgeable kids. at that point. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and quite articulate too. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. So basically what they're saying is that um, parents care about what their children think, which mm. is a good thing mm. to know, mm. and also that children are much more open to the science of climate change because they don't hold any particular political views. You know, at 10 to 14, they're not really thinking politically. They're just thinking about the facts. Yeah. So the researchers argue that this has opened up a really clear pathway of how we might shift people who are really stubborn in resisting the facts and, and what needs to be done about climate change, if you can empower their children to have the correct information and give those children the opportunity to talk with but their parents, is, maybe this is one pathway to change. It is, it is interesting, isn't it, that, that in my mind that seems to sit very comfortably with the idea that people are influenced by people they trust. Now, frequently, it's people they probably shouldn't trust on a particular topic, you know, mm. e.g. celebrities on TV talking about science. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a big one random example. Yeah. But, you know, but the fact you, you, you do, at the very least, you, you probably you have a, an, an enormous empathy and depth of relationship with a child, and you probably trust their feelings at least. Mm. Um, let's face it, you, you, even with an education of that sort, the child's still not an expert, but that, that's no. superseded by who it is. Absolutely, and the child has the capacity to argue, this is my future. You're making that's decisions a good point. that are going to affect my future mm, even yes. after you're long gone and that's a pretty powerful So their emotional argument. stake is very high. Yeah, mm. And yeah. that argument in itself is probably the, the core to it I think because mm. kids are less discerning of what they read than most adults because mm. they've got less experience. I mean you know, it's not a, a bad thing, it's just they haven't experienced the way information can be misused as much as adults have mm. and so they're more likely to, to believe you know, inappropriate things as well. I mean, so you've yeah. got to be very careful what you educate them with and what schools Absolutely. give them. But the idea that, you know, you're playing with their future as well as your yeah, own, that's I think is, that's, the, that's a powerful mm. aspect of it. Mm. Mm. Absolutely. Interesting. Uh, Chris KP? Hi. Um, 
Well, I, uh, how are you? What I, else you got? Well, cats' asses um, is, is what I've got. Um, Chocolate and, starfish? And, uh, well... Sorry, yes. that's how I've always... Are they on the show this today? I don't... Well, I was hoping to get them in, but they weren't available. Okay, that's a shame. For Chris's segment. Pity, because it would have been very appropriate. <laughs> um, so people who own cats, um, and, and obviously some cats more than others, would, would know that uh, domestic cats and, and all cats um, engage in scent marking um, a, a, to mark where their territory is and to some extent what sort of mood they're in as well. Uh, and to do this, they have anal glands, which are just by their anus, um, and they release these various stinky compounds from, from there. Um, and when I say stinky, they have... Potentially, depending on the on the cat and the situation, hundreds potentially of different volatile mm. compounds that that can be picked up. Now, you know, obviously that's not that surprising in itself, and the role that these scents play in in ecology that's not that surprising either. Mm. Um, and it's therefore not surprising that over that period of evolution, these cats would have developed the uh, the capacity to make these compounds. Except it turns out that they haven't. So, at least not all of them. So now, th- what I'm what I'm about to tell you about this is not being published yet. By the way, this is bare. Yeah, oh, hot, yeah. Hot. science. Hello, hot or dodgy? You can choose. <laughs> Who do you know, Chris? Well, uh, you know, no one. Um, uh, <laughs> he just doesn't want to let on. This is his own research. I, I, he's been yeah. doing. <laughs> I, I, I couldn't. I couldn't use the name David Coyle from from uh, uh, UC California Davis. Um, but the point is that David and his team have actually only studied one cat. Oh. This is why it's not published yet. M equals one. Yeah, N equals one. Um, but what they're trying to do is a, it's a proof of principle because the, the hypothesis is that the, the compounds producing the scents in the anal glands of the cat are not made by the cat. They're made by bacteria. This is the, that's step one. And so then, which is not, you know, that's not that crazy an idea, but, you know, it, can we show that it's true? Anyway, so the story goes that they very carefully, I assume, extracted <laughs> fluid from the anal glands of this cat, um, whose name is not mentioned anywhere, took this stuff and shipped it, um, you know, across town, more than 100, 100 k's across town to the lab. And they then went through this stuff and worked out what was in it and then ext- and what bacteria was in it. They then cultured the bacteria uh, and they found that in the anal sac secretions, there was 127 compounds. So that's quite a lot. The bacteria that was cultured produced 67 compounds. And the crossover, so the number of things that the bacteria produced that were actually in the, uh, in the, in the anal sac secretion were 52. So 52 of 67 were in the secretion. So a lot of what this bacteria is producing is going into hmm. um, the, uh, the sense of this cat. So basically it's an issue of not so much that the cat's making sense, but the cat is, for want of a better term, farming bacteria. Mm. It's wonderfully symbiotic. You've got, you know, it's providing a warm, moist, comfortable place for this particular microbiome to exist. <laughs> I'm disturbed with the word comfortable, but warm, moist. Yeah. <laughs> the cat's happy enough with its anal glands, <laughs> even if you're not. <laughs> and, yeah, and the bacteria go, yeah, no sweat. We can exude this stuff, which you can use to mark um, your, uh, your territory with life. Now, now I'm thinking about microbiome. I'm exactly. thinking about what, what happens when you feed your cat different diets. Mm. Wow, and this exactly, that's what I went to. I went to as well. I'm like, well, okay, so how easy, for want of a better phrase, is it for the cat to maintain this environment? Mm. And if you change the the um, the, the proportion of community in, in that microbiome in the anal sacs, then, uh, you know, what does that do to the scent? And also, 
to what extent is it changeable? Like, it's not in the dietary tract. So, you know, if you change its diet, does it impact mm. and, and how quickly? So I don't know, and this is why it's, a, it's an it's early study. given that the idea of scent marking is that you're leaving a scent of you as an individual. Exactly. How consistent is your individual scent and, and how much alike is it with other cats that live in the same place? And, and if there is a particular message as in, um, you know, beyond just my territory, if, it, if it's a mating signal or something, is that how mm. easy is it to trigger that? Mm. Or is that a bit that the cat goes, yeah. I'll, t- I'll take care of that bit myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do that bit because it's really quite specific. Um, you take care of the general me stink. So, Chris, are you putting your hand up to sample cats around Melbourne just to see what's out there? Or uh, I'm not putting my hand up to squeeze anal glands, um, but uh, but I'm, I'd be happy if anyone wanted to extend the research. Totally. <laughs> there could be some cat, cat legal battles as a result. You know, when you know Tom says that's his territory, but others say, well, well you know, we beg to differ. You We've know, smelt that area, and it doesn't smell like you, Tom. And we know you had a big night out the I night did, before. But I did hear about a about a gated community in the US that was actually taking if if there was was dog feces left on the gardens? They sent it to a lab oh. and got a DNA test. Oh. Nice. And nice. Every, every dog that was owned there had it, had had its DNA on. That's when you know you've got too much money. Wow. <laughs> yeah, but you wouldn't want to make that mistake because everyone would know. <laughs> everyone would know. Yeah, you could do that with hand washing and toilets and all sorts of stuff, I suppose. Um, okay, get ready. I want to hurt your heads a little bit here with oh, this one. Oh, thank you. Excellent. Yeah, uh, so gravitational waves. Yes. We've, we've all, all of a sudden, everyone knows about gravitational waves because a few years back, you know, in 2016, uh, we detected the first ever gravitational wave, which is a prediction of Einstein's theory of general relativity. And it was amazing that the LIGO instrument managed to pick up this really subtle shift in space time that went past us. Um, amazingly, just a month after it was turned on. I mean, took a <laughs> billions of years to get to us and we were just in time, which I think is the only proof I've ever come across of God in any form. Um, and I say, you know, I say that because we're in the religious hour. Um, but the, <laughs> the interesting thing is, is when a gravitational wave goes past, it's not like a sort of wave in the ocean where it just goes past you and all is forgotten. It actually leaves a mark. And this is a detectable mark, which when you look at the instruments, people can actually determine that the wave has gone past. And it's part of the, you know, the, the weirdness of the theory uh, that these things leave a detectable mark. Now, if you think about what's happening here, effectively, you know, space time is kind of distorting. So you wouldn't really expect, nothing's really going past you. It's the fabric of space that's changing, mm. changing shape. So you think, how the hell is it leaving a mark? And what's interesting is um, just recently, some physicists have sort of started looking about how do we measure this? Is there other ways to measure gravitational waves? And could we do it instead of measuring the wave itself by looking for the marks that it leaves in its path? Because this, this would open up you know, the ability to say, for example, we have a lot of data on the, the microwave background from when the universe was, you know, mm-hmm. early in its creation. Could you see the marks from gravitational waves that were occurring early on in that microwave background? So, but there's, there's a few, there are three new observable, um, observables that they think, you know, these are ways in which they think you could do this. And two of them I'm not going to read out because they will give you a <laughs> monstrous headache. And we don't have enough time in the show for me to explain them completely. But there's one that I think is, is reasonable to sort of think about. And that is the idea, if you have two, let's just call them two particles or two observables, so these are you know, people who are observing things, and they're travelling away from each other um, and they're accelerating. So the, it's very important that they're accelerating. They can't be travelling at a constant speed. They have to be accelerating. When the gravitational wave goes past them, um, they will end up a certain distance apart afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that distance will be different than if the gravitational wave hadn't gone past and they were just sitting in sure. normal space that time. Makes sense. Sure. Yeah. And you can sort of understand that because, you know, the waves, sort of, if you think of it, you're bobbing up and down, mm-hmm. if you like, and it's not quite what happens, but, you know, 
If you bob up at a certain speed and then you bob down at a different speed, well, your position's changed. Sure. It's not what it was before. So this is one way in which they might be able to, you know, detect this. And you'd be able to see this if you were looking at objects out in space that were moving, you know, accelerating away from one another. You'd be able to tell potentially what they might look like compared Mm -hmm. to, you know, if, if that hadn't happened. So it's... It's mm. weird stuff. Like it's weird stuff because it's the it's the actual fabric of space time that's shifting. But there are multiple ways in which they think you'll be able to make these detections. So in the future, we may not we may not have to actually detect the gravitational wave itself. We may be able to see the fact that it's gone past. Now the other two um, the other two are really funky things that you have to do. And one of them, um, the authors of this particular paper even admit that we don't currently have the technology to go anywhere near <laughs> doing that yet. <laughs> but it would be cool if we could. <laughs> but uh, at this point in time, no, 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 we can't do it. So anyway, it's it's interesting. I think this field of you know what's becoming gravitational wave astronomy. Mm. Um, which is something that we haven't had before. You know, we've got radio astronomy, we've got optical astronomy, and all of a sudden we have this new version now, gravitational waves, that allows you to look at various objects in ways that we didn't do before because unlike um, all the light-based astronomies, gravitational waves just run through everything, including dust and anything that might be in your way so you can see things that you don't otherwise observe from far, far away. So anyway, it's cool stuff, gravitational wave theory. If you want to, you know, read... For weekend reading uh, before next week's show, Einstein's Theory of General Relativity. It'll be worthwhile. It's a real page turner. There's a quiz next week. There's a quiz next week. <laughs> You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. We have three guests in the studio. We normally don't have three at one time, but we thought we could squeeze them all in. We've got Dr. Emily Edwards. She's a research fellow in the Department of Immunology and Pathology in the Central Clinical School at Monash University. And we also have Louise, who is a patient, and her daughter, May, who is five, who is a patient. Hello, May. Hello. <laughs> Good to have you in the studio. Um, Emily, we're going to start with Thank you. you. <laughs> we're going to start with you, Emily. You, you work on very much on the immune system and yes, how, how this works. And we, we spoke to you last, last year, I think it was. Yes, yeah. back in November last year. Back in November last year about B cells and their mm-hmm. role. So can you give us a bit of a, a sort of revision on, on B cells and what they're doing? Yeah, so uh, B cells are one of the cells of your immune system. And they make these really important proteins called immunoglobulins. You might also hear them called antibodies. And these are sort of specific to different, for example, viruses. So, for example, if you've seen, had a flu, um, a flu infection, then you would normally mount flu specific antibodies to that um, particular, um, virus Mm -hmm. and then what happens is those antibodies then neutralize that virus to eliminate it from your system so that also is the same sort of response you will get in response to a vaccination Mm. so that's why it's quite important to get get your vaccines year on year and um, we look quite um, in depth at these these particular B cells because in patients with primary immunodeficiencies their B cells often don't work properly so they don't produce these antibodies um, and it also means that these patients can also not, usually can't be vaccinated mm. because they won't mount that response. So that's why it's important for individuals like you and I who don't, or and this yeah. is actually the case for people with other immunocompromised conditions, mm. like if they mm. have uh, cancer, take, treatments, cancer or treatments and things yep. like that, yeah, that we ourselves get vaccinated, not just to protect ourselves, mm. but 
protect those around us. Yeah, I mean, obviously, it's the smoking on the bus principle, right? I yes. Mean, you know, you can do whatever you want to your own body, but don't smoke on the bus because yeah. there's other people on the bus. So in, in terms of these immune deficiencies, I mean, yeah. how common is this? That I mean, what you is the immune system? Well, first of all, answer that question. How, how common are these? So they're pretty rare, so it's quite hard to pin down a number because it varies from country to country. And um, so, for example, for predominantly antibody deficiencies, which are those where the most common um, finding is that there are reduced antibody levels. Mm -hmm. um, in Australia, it's about 1 in 25,000. So that's okay. pretty rare. And they're, they're genetically based. So that means that the individual has a genetic mutation in a gene that controls the immune system that then causes these effects. And it's not just B cells. There are T cells that Mm. also play a role, but B-cells are the main... Now, when, when you talk about deficiency, I mean, yeah. so the immune system's working somewhat, but it's not... So, yeah. so, so how, how well is it? Like, what could it do? Well, it's, it's, it can do very little. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Especially, um, it depends which cell is impacted. So um, if your B-cells don't work properly, then what these patients tend to do, because I've just said, obviously, they don't produce the antibodies mm. properly, they have to have long-term immunoglobulin replacement okay. therapy. So those yeah. antibodies are um, replaced, and that's that can happen... Patients often have to have these treatments every three weeks. Some yeah. have them every week, depending on what type of treatment you use. But yeah, you can also we, get T-cell deficiencies, and that's where your T-cells don't work properly. Um, so usually, if you have an isolated B-cell deficiency, mm -hmm. that doesn't mean that your T-cells don't work. It just means that there's different mechanisms at play mm -hmm. as to which infections you might get or which... Mm. which things are working better. It's like a balancing act. And yeah, yeah. Because we were talking to Mimi Tank from the Royal yes. Children's uh, yeah, a just a couple of weeks ago, and one of the things that we, we um, talked about was just how in a day-to-day -day environment, mm how many things your body deals with and so it seems like you, you know in, in this scenario even just that simple not not you being exposed to something like the flu but just yeah. touching doorknobs and general bacteria is i assume you know catastrophically problematic it can be yeah it can be now um now you brought in uh, a, a patient for us which is really yes, so louise is. um and and her daughter may who is also a patient which we didn't realize until she she came in here um louise tell us i mean what what's your your situation what what have you been diagnosed with in this sense so i have um common variable immune deficiency mm -hmm. um and i receive monthly infusions of um immunoglobulin replacement mm -hmm. um May also has CVID and has weekly, um, right, weekly globulin replacement therapy. And when when did you find out? I mean, you're you're obviously older than May. I can think I can yep. say that. <laughs> it's um, a mother and daughter biology. A mother and daughter thing. <laughs> um, but how how young were you when you found out? Or was this something you? It came up later in life. So unfortunately, I wasn't diagnosed till I was about the age of thirty. Wow! Um, but throughout my childhood and twenties, I was often unwell. Um, so lots of chest infections and ear infections yeah. as a child, and then just strange infections um, throughout my young adult life. Yeah. Um, and I ended up in hospital with salmonella poisoning and had all these very bizarre complications. Wow. And then had a. Um, luckily for me, I had a very knowledgeable guest gastroenterologist who um, suggested I see an immunologist and that's how it was picked up. And, and how do they then actually, do they actually measure what your immune cells are producing? Indeed, like, it's, it's just a blood test, yeah. which is um, 
quite a simple process, but it takes a long time to get there, yeah. unfortunately. Yeah, and, and with May, obviously, you know, she's five. Yeah. Um, when did you find out that she was sick? So May, unfortunately, also has cystic fibrosis, so she has a double whammy. Mm. Um, so she was in hospital from eight weeks of age, um, and she had a partial collapsed lung, um, and she was not improving. And so they then went on and did some further testing of her um, immunoglobulin levels and found that they were also low. Mm. So she was lucky in a sense that she's been able to start treatment from a younger age. Yeah. And, and what, um, what's the, I suppose, what's the impact beyond the treatment each week? I think it's weekly for her. Yeah. Um, what's the impact other than that on her life at the moment? Um, so she um, can't be immunised right. as well. She doesn't um, have a response to immunizations or vaccinations um and we're just extra very extra careful with hand washing and avoiding other people that are unwell um you know probably has more time off school than the average child may start a prep this year and she loves school which is (laughs) yeah so much fun but (laughs) is um, school good may yes yeah what do you learn at school um, lots of things like stuff like that. Yeah, that's cool. <laughs> it, it, when, when you say keep her away from people who are unwell, I'm sorry, but when I hear the word school, having yes. two children myself, mm. I just hear unwell. I know. <laughs> Schools are, are breeding so grounds for, for everything you can imagine. I mean, that must be incredibly daunting for you as a parent. It was scary. Starting kinder was very scary. Yeah. Um, and we just try to educate the teachers and the other families about hand washing and yeah, yeah we're, we're germaphobes probably. Yeah, well, I think that's, that's <laughs> perfectly reasonable. I always thought that um, Kinder in particular is the place where the germs go to get better so that they can attack the parents and kill us <laughs> <Yeah>. all. <laughs> like, it seems to be the breeding ground for nasty viruses that they all bring home that, you know, the kids yeah. get over after a day and us parents are out for a week. So true. Um, uh, Emily, back to you. In terms of uh, treatments, I mean, how has that progressed over the years? Um, you mentioned there's the infusions, but I mean, for someone as young as May, you know, a, a, an infusion of this type every week is pretty pretty intense process. Yeah, and it's quite an intensive process for the parents who have to administer this treatment yeah. to the children as well. So um, May was telling me earlier she gets her Netflix um, fix when she's having her immunoglobulin yeah. um, treatments and she gets to choose whatever she wants to watch. But it's quite a daunting process, I can imagine, having to basically stick your child with a, a needle, which is what the case is for a, a lot of individuals. Um, treatments are progressing. It it's obviously takes quite a while. I mean, the other thing for uh, for patients is that they have antibody, an, um, antibiotics sorry, to prevent infections, but of course that can have a knock-on effect. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's sort of where research is, is slowly try, starting to catch up and we're trying to sort of pick apart all the sort of mechanisms as to why the immune systems don't, you know, the immune cells don't work properly and what we can do to try and target those. Um, but it's it's a long process. And, and the, the other thing is it's not just that patients have antibody deficiencies. They can have what we call non-infectious complications such as autoimmunity and mm-hmm. gastrointestinal disease and things like that that require treatment. And some of the treatments that are around at the moment are not efficacious for all patients. Um, so we're having to try and sort of, it's the balancing act. A lot of these treatments are immunosuppressive, which is bad enough in someone whose immune system mm, is yeah. functioning correctly. But if you've already got a deficiency, you're basically pushing it down further. So you've got to kind of be careful what you're doing. Yeah. And in a lot of, a lot of patients, because, and it's, it sounds a bit counterintuitive, but because the, it's classed that the disease is not severe enough 
something like bone marrow transplantation, which is the only curative therapy at this at this moment in time, would not be considered mm. um, because that's obviously high, extremely high risk. High risk. And yep. unless you've got something like severe combined immunodeficiency where both your T cells and your NK cells don't work, um, and basically B cells actually, even though they're present, they don't function properly, um, that's, those patients have to be transplanted in the first few mm. months of life. But other than those really severe cases, then that would not be applied. Um, in terms of those curative therapies, a lot of work is going into looking at um, gene-based therapies, the correction of the mutation within the individual, but that's not without its risks. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of research and clinical trials going on to look at that a bit more yeah. intently. Yeah. Um, but we're, we're sort of starting to sort of find new and innovative ways to start picking apart the mechanisms and genomics is going to make a huge yeah, dent in that world it's going to mm. bring us maybe some person you know personalized medicine and it's going to make us be able to sort of identify the genes that are playing a role which is what is often the case is a lot of these patients don't know what gene it is that's yeah. affected it, it sounds like um the i've always, i've said this a lot to people in the you know immunology space of late the interest in immune versions of cancer treatments yeah. has drawn in a huge amount of funding into understanding the immune system properly, which hopefully will affect people who aren't cancer patients, but exactly. you know, patients of other types as well. It's, it's disturbing that that's had to be the requirement to, yeah. to bring more money in, but it's great that it's happening. Um, Louise, with regards to you know this whole push at the moment around vaccinations and the, the I mean this must drive you nuts as I mean we I've often said on this show you know there's that front line of people who can't be immunized but you know with your daughter you you must you must hear these stories and just be aghast at the it idea that people scary. yeah I mean I mean how do you how do you sort of respond to that those those commentaries around people not wanting to vaccinate their children I understand the concern but um I've also seen my daughter extremely unwell, so mm. it, um, it kind of feels like a very selfish decision of people not to have their children vaccinated. Yeah. Yeah, knowing that there's so much research around them being safe, and I know that some people may have, you know, some unusual reactions, but overall... Yeah, I suppose the, 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 the risk to me is yeah, very enormous. immediate and, and enormous. Yeah, yeah it's scary, and particularly today when it seems like, you know, the, the measles outbreaks, and mm. yeah, it's scary. Yeah. Well, look, uh, it's great having all three you in thanks so much for coming and chatting about this well, we're, we're, we're we're out of Thank time you so know, we're, we're out of time but it, look it, it, it's really good to see first of all you know that the research is continuing and it is getting more funding which is great but but louise i, I you know don't envy you the task of having to deal not only with, with your own condition but also with may's and she's such a little trooper she um is. it's she's great but you know the idea of uh, these weekly treatment it's great we can do it but it's it must be horrendous to go through so thanks so much for giving up your time and time thank you so much and may good to see you Thank you. Be good at school, okay? Yeah. <clears throat> and take good care of mum. It's Mother's Day. Yeah. Do you want to say Happy Mother's Day to her? Happy Mother's Day, mummy. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right, folks. On that, uh, on that very emotional note. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio Three Triple R in Melbourne, Australia. Oh, welcome back, everybody. You're listening to Triple R. Dr. Ewan is going to tell us about a new species report, which we're all excited about. <laughs> <laughs> Are we? I don't think so. No. Uh, it's, it's an impressive report. Oh, you're missing your microphone. Not- it's an impressive report. <laughs> Apologies for that. You talk into Hello, the... Hello, amateur hour. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so... Hey, look, can I say... 
Even the five-year-old could. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, see, I'm, t- I'm temporarily disoriented because I had to move around with you, you and then I got moved out of my little niche. Like Every Chris, week so that's I do why with Chris that. goes to his little spot. He does what he does, and it works well. So right. Important issues. <laughs> um, so a really large report came out uh, this week, um, the IPBSE report, the Intergovernmental Panel on biodiversity and ecosystem services. It's a mouthful. Catchy, it's essentially catchy. Yeah. really catchy. It's a UN report, all right? Mm. But I, I've, I've been saying, I've done a bit of media this week on this, and I, I've been saying I think it's genuinely one of the most important documents we've ever produced, mm. you know, okay. ever. It is essentially a health check of the planet in terms of all the living things and how they're going. Now, spoiler alert, none of them are going particularly well. Um, and probably one of the headline, um, I guess, statements coming out of this report is that one million out of eight million species are threatened with extinction. Now, bear in mind, we don't even know how many species we have on right, Earth. Right. The current estimates, the ones that are most agreed on is around eight million, but it's probably a lot more than that. How many of the eight are uh, insects? Oh, that's a great question. I should know the answer to that. A lot would be the short half, answer. Oh, half, I would think even more than that. More so, half, yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, and they are... Because I hate bugs. And they, <laughs> are, and they are by far and away the most under... you know, under, Unknown. Like, along with fungi and yeah, other things, yeah, we yeah. just know almost nothing yeah, about them. Yeah, yep, so yep. it's a gross underestimate. Um, and essentially what this report has shown, it, it, as a conservation type, I've sort of known where we're at. In that you know, uh, huge numbers of species are facing extinction. Forty uh, percent of amphibians, so frogs, salamanders, uh, are faced with extinction. Um, one third of um, reef corals are faced with extinction, mm. uh, and the list goes on and on and on. Um, and so, it's really painting a pretty dire picture of what's happening to life on Earth. And many of these extinctions, by the way, are predicted to happen quite rapidly. So, within the coming decades, mm. and of course, this is tied with you know climate change and so forth. And so. You know, uh, 500 um, people were consulted around the world from 50 countries. It's an 1,800-page report, 15,000 scientific papers. You know, this is a, this wow. makes the IPCC report look... Like an appendix. Yeah, it do, It really does. This yeah. is a huge tome yeah. of information about where we're tracking. And, you know, again, other stats, you know, since 1970, 40% of land-based species have declined, uh, 84% of freshwater species, 35% of marine, marine mm. species. I could go on and on and on. Mm. So what... I mean, one of the immediate questions I have is, and, and I, so I'm going to sort of hit yeah, you yeah, hard yeah. with this question because I think this is really important for context, is relative to what? That's always my question. Is when you say 40% decline in, say, 30, 40 years of a particular species, I mean, we, we gain and lose species mm. every day. Right, yeah. this has been happening, you know, so yeah. long as life has been on Earth. How does how does this scenario yeah. compare to? I, I, I hesitate to use the word normal because mm-hmm. I think it's hard to find where it was normal. Yeah. But you know, a baseline that's reasonable without yeah. us screwing things up. Yeah, perfect. So essentially, we're looking at extinction rates that are about a hundred times or more above what's called normal. And we talk okay. about the background extinction rate. Mm. And the background extinction rate is calculated typically using fossils. So we go to the fossil record and we say for a particular group, let's say marine snails, how many species do we see? How long does a species um, survive in the fossil record? And we can yeah. actually therefore estimate the life of a species in millions of years. Right. Yeah. And you might only expect for a group of organisms, one or two species to dis- disappear per year. Okay. You know, very, very minimal as a proportion of the total number of species. Yeah. We're seeing extinction rates hundreds and 
in some cases, probably thousands of times above that extinction rate. So okay. way above yeah, what's it's, normal. It's, it's, yeah, it's a good and, comparison. And yeah. we're not going to bring those species back anytime soon. Yeah. So yes, of course, you know, the way that biodiversity works is that species go extinct, species are evolving, right? But <laughs> the ledger is well and truly in favour yeah. of extinction at the moment. So we're losing a lot more species. The other important thing to do is to focus on that we're not just talking about extinction of species, but we're talking about reductions in populations, which of course brings species t- closer mm. to extinction. Mm-hmm. So really large reductions in the population sizes and the distributions of species around the world. So there's that big report that went around a few months ago talking about the decline of population sizes. And it got misreported in a few places talking about species, but it was mm. actually population size. Okay. But that's just yep. as concerning, of course, because yeah. once a population gets really small and isolated, it only takes a storm or a yep. disease or yeah. some sort of freak event and, you know, it's it can done. disappear yeah. in, in, yeah. one, in, in a very short amount of time. Yeah. So the numbers are huge mm. uh, and we're not acting nearly enough and fast enough uh, in terms of to stop this. So we've got all these uh, um, Aichi targets as an example for the Convention of Biological Diversity to essentially conserve, conserve things. Mm. We're failing most of those targets, failing miserably like we are with, of course, climate change and addressing that. And so it really does um, speak to that we're fundamentally just not doing what's required to stop this from occurring. Now, we love nature, but if you want to sort of take a more... Um, I guess, practical view of this, uh, aside from just liking nature and having it around us, if we lose these things, we place ourselves at risk. Mm. So I was interested in your, in your conversation article. Yeah. You made the note that the, the, different, the distance in time between something being threatened and being extinct is actually quite small and getting yeah, smaller. exactly. And that, I think that plays into what you're just saying, that yeah. if we want to do something about it, we kind of need to heed a warning sign really quickly. Yeah. Has, so has that... Has that has the nature of that warning system, if you like, changed, or do we need to act differently? Yeah, so there's a few things in that. So definitely, species can go from being, you know, relatively common to extinct quite quickly. And uh, I've been asked a, a number of times this week, well, you know, when will things get really bad, or when should we act? <laughs> well, <laughs> the, yesterday, the sooner we act, good question. The sooner we act, the more likely it is to be effective, and the less costly it's going to be too. Yeah. Again, just mm. like climate change, if we wait till things get really, really, really bad, it's going to cost us orders of magnitude money to fix it if we can fix it yeah. um, and all the damage is done in the process. If, so, I was a, if I was a betting man I'd say that we're, we're going to wait until something literally bites us on the ass. but um, a, a question for you in regards to the, the, the populations and which species are actually mm-hmm. under threat I, I mean there, there are some species to me that I, I, I have the intuition, maybe I'm wrong have a quicker recovery time than other species when their populations are decimated. Uh, Which species are the ones that are most at risk here, or is it all of them? Because if it's it's in the insects of the world, I can imagine the the response time might be quite quick, but, you know, not not quite to the polar bear sort of area, but if you're sort of halfway up and you're relatively small mammals or whatever, some of them can respond faster? So the sad reality is it's across the board. (laughs) So it's every ecosystem you can imagine, it's every group of organism you can imagine, and even insects, so you're right. So species have different life histories. So, you know, insects can breed rapidly in high numbers, um, therefore they have shorter generation times and and Mm. things like adaptation and evolution Mm. can occur um, Mm. Uh, more uh, readily and rapidly yeah. and safer mammals on in general. Yeah. But we've seen in places like Puerto Rico over um, several decades a collapse of uh, up to 60-fold in the biomass of but within a rainforest. Now, this is a relatively pristine rainforest and that was put down to climate change, an increase of two degrees in temperature. So even things that we think 
are perhaps more resilient insects in comparison to, say, you know, large mammals, so with things like whales and so forth, elephants, mm. whatever it might be, they're showing collapse. Now, of course, we know that insects are fundamental to existence mm. in a whole range of yeah. ways. They pollinate a huge range of plants. They obviously provide food for a whole range of organisms as well. In the case of the Puerto Rican study, they also found that over that same time period where the uh, insects collapsed, so too did birds, reptiles and amphibians because they eat them, mm. and so they've, they've lost their food. And so, you know, I think it's over three quarters of crops that humans rely on are pollinated by insects mm. and, and other pollinators too, mammals as well. So fruit bats. Another mm. example of this was it uh, a few months ago uh, in two days in, yeah. in Cairns, a third of Australia's uh, spectacled flying fox population died in two days yeah. Yeah, because, because of an extreme yeah. heat event. That's, that's the kind of stuff that can make a difference because you're not yeah. talking about a vague, a no. known number and a percentage. You're talking yeah. about, mm. would you say, a third? A third. A so 23,000 bats died yeah. in two days, which is about a third of the population. This species is already threatened with extinction. Mm. And mm. so I think this is uh, another thing as well, is that people have sort of thought about extinction as seeing sort of happening in the wild. We don't really see it. Yeah. Well, now we're yeah. seeing it. We're seeing, so it. We're seeing yeah. the reef. We're seeing dead bats on the ground. Yeah. We're seeing the fish kill. Mm. The list goes on and on and on. So it's, it's there now. We can't yeah. ignore it anymore. It's right in their face. Yeah. You are listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 Triple R FM in Melbourne, Australia. And what's causing it? <laughs> Look, the, the main threats that are causing all these extinctions are, again, quite well known. Habitat loss and modification is by far the biggest. So clearing of land, as an example, to produce food. And I think that's a really important point that people often blame, as an example, farmers for these problems. Well, we all eat. Mm-hmm. So we've all got to own this problem, right? Yeah. Um, uh, the expansion of cities around the world, so urbanisation. So loss of habitat is by far and away the, the biggest threat. Um, but then there's also other really big threats as well. So uh, um, invasive species, so moving species around the world. We know an example, of course, in Australia with feral cats and foxes and all the damage they've done. Um, pollution is a really big one that's coming out now. So there was a um, stat showing that 90% of seabirds have fragments of plastics in their stomach sure. and 1 million seabirds die per year because of that. Um, that's just, you know, an estimate there. Um, and, of course, climate change is, is compounding all this so and this is a really hard thing to i think is communicating is that there's a lot of focus on climate change and as there should be but it's not the biggest threat yet mm, to uh, biodiversity but it's absolutely going to compound it so you know when you've already got systems that are under stress as an example from habitat loss mm. then you add increasing temperature on top of that which might also help things uh, like invasive species spread so imagine cane toads in northern australia they can now occupy areas further south because it's warmer so all these threats start to build upon each other mm. And just make the matters worse. It's very interesting to say that because years ago, people would remember on the show, I'd say things like, I'm not focused on climate change, I'm focused on environmental sustainability because I felt, you know, things like pollution of the rivers didn't yep. deal with climate change at all, yep. but we were forgetting it because all of the news was on one thing and we we're going to yep. be careful not to let that happen. So, yep. so you're going to think, you know, we've all been joking about how depressing it is, but it is actually very overwhelming, this report, because it's so big and it identifies so many problems. And you know, you, you've identified the key threats, but I think for individual species, there's also going to be other really local causes. And, you know, there's just so many things wrong. What what does the report tell us about what on earth we should do about it and where can we start? Because it's so easy just to sit back and say, well, it's all just terrible and mm. we're stuck. <laughs> so I think you need action at the highest level at government, but we also need to act at, at, as individuals. So at the highest level, there's some really confronting ideas to tackle, which is population size and consumption per individual. And that's a really important one because it's all very well to say 
stop having children, but there's very wealthy people, a very small proportion of the, of the planet, who use a lot of resources mm. compared mm. to most of the other people on Earth. So that's a really important one to consider. Uh, we need much stronger gut, uh, laws to protect um, species. So, an example, in Australia, our environmental laws are woefully inadequate for conserving species. So Chris asked before how quickly an animal goes from being common to threatened to extinct. Often there'll be an action plan to stop that threatened species from going extinct, but often that is never actually enacted, so they never do anything about it, they don't fund it, and then it goes extinct and we wonder why. <laughs> so our environmental laws need a lot of improvement. We also invest a very, very tiny amount of money in conserving the environment, so less than 1% of our GDP. And yet, you know, Australia is one of the wealthiest countries per capita in the mm. world. We have an amazing, um, you know, array of plants and animals found nowhere else on Earth, and yet we don't do a lot, really, to conserve them. As an individual, um, there's a whole range of things we can do. So, you know, in terms of what we eat, you know, <laughs> there's a really big discussion there about, you know, is my life sustainable? Um, do I really need to fly everywhere to all the different mm. meetings that I go to? <clears throat> you know, that, again, they confront people. People, but that's a reality. If everybody yeah. lived the lives that we live, and I'm talking about we as if in quite privileged people in terms of what we can do, it would be a lot worse than it already is. So, um, But, of course, doing other things as well, you know, tangible things like restoring habitats where you, where you have that opportunity, getting involved in conservation group. You mentioned talking to children earlier on the show about the importance of the environment, having connection to the environment. That's really important as well. How we create our cities is also really important. So there's been some fantastic research done in Melbourne, uh, including people at RMIT who are trying to design cities that are more wildlife friendly because it's a, it's a misconception that there's no wildlife in cities. Mm, there's actually a yeah. lot of wildlife in cities and if we made them greener by having things like you know green designs, you know rooftop gardens, a whole range of things, we could have even more wildlife in our cities. So I guess it, to answer your question, Jen, there's a huge range of things we need to do at an individual level right through to government <laughs> at the highest level. Mm. Presumably, presumably one of those things um, is next Saturday. Yes. 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 That is just just yeah. saying it's an opportunity yeah. that happens once every few years. Yep. 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 Yeah. But it's it's always interesting to me that um, these things are not on the political agenda. Yeah. I mean, I I haven't heard a single person talk about species extinction. You know, there's all the climate stuff's all the energy uses all there, but that, the, the it is now. Is so there's mm. been a recent survey that's shown that actually the environment is one of the hot issues. I, I agree with you. In the previous mm. years, I tear my hair out because we're talking about mm. all sorts of economic things, nothing to do the environment but now they've shown with surveys that the environment and climate change related but separate issues are both rating very highly hmm. with voters so maybe we'll see a response to this who knows you would, you would hope so but yep. uh, I will I will happily be proved wrong <laughs> if that happens because uh, I suspect that as always um, there'll be a whole other fear but not fear over something that might actually literally cause us very very big problems and, and cost Indeed. us an absolute bucket load of money anyway uh, on that extraordinarily great note uh, thank you Dr. Yon for all that um, You're welcome. It's good. Uh, we will be talking more and more about that over the, the coming years, no doubt. Dr. Jen, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. Happy Mother's Day to all the mums and thoughts to the people. That it's a, it's a tough day for. Yeah, mm. indeed. Uh, Chris KP, good Always to see a pleasure. You. Yes, yeah. likewise. Thanks for listening to An Hour of Science, and we'll chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.